Bob, this last week you heard me talking about Robert Manry. It's such a fascinating story. I first heard it years ago, but I just became aware that recently a documentary came out on his life. Robert Manry, back in the 1940s and 50s, he was working at a newspaper in Cleveland, the Cleveland's Plain Dealer. He was a copy editor. It was a paper that came out in the morning, so he would always be working the night shift. Robert was a, a, a wonderful guy. He was married to his wife, Virginia. They had purchased a small home there in Cleveland. He had two children, a boy and a girl. They had a cat and a dog. They had a station wagon. You know, he was just kind of living the regular life. And then one day he saw in the ads a sailboat. It was 13 and a half feet long. Now, that's not very long. That's not a very big sailboat, 13 and a half feet. It was called Tinkerbell, and it cost $30. It was 1958 when he bought that boat. It took him a whole year to finally get it ready to sail the first time. 1959, he started sailing it. And he started having fun and learning more and more. And when it came to vacation time, he took his son, and the two of them sailed all around Lake Erie. They would sail more than 200 miles. And it was then that Robert came to believe that this was a very seaworthy boat. He began to build a cabin, a little protection on top of the boat, and he started toying with the idea, what would it be like to sail the ocean, to sail across the Atlantic? I mean, that was a dream he had had, and now he thought it might be possible in a 13 and a half foot boat. He didn't tell people about his dream or the idea or what he started working on, because he was so afraid people would try to talk him out of it. He knew how many people would say, oh, that's dangerous. You're going to die. Oh, how could you think of doing such a thing? So he just didn't talk about it, except to his wife, Virginia. And his wife, Virginia, was supportive of the dream. Did it cause her concern, scare her? Absolutely. But she supported his dream. He worked on it, and finally, it was May 24th, 1965, early in the morning, he cast off the dock line at Falmouth, Massachusetts. His goal was to sail across the Atlantic and land at Falmouth, England. Because back in 1660, people, Englishmen, had set sail from Falmouth, England, and they had landed there in this new world and established Falmouth, Massachusetts. He wanted to make the trip the other way and complete it. He didn't tell his boss what he was doing. He simply took a, a leave of absence. They really hadn't told their friends. As I say, he was afraid what they would all say. So he set sail, heading out into the Atlantic. He'd been gone about five weeks, about a thousand miles from shore now, when a tanker saw this little boat out there in the ocean. Fearing that something was wrong or someone needed help, they diverted course, went over, and began to holler at him, are you all right? And he said, yes. He said, is there anything we can give to you or take care of or help you with? And he said, well, I have some letters you could deliver for me. He had written letters now to his employer, to his boss, to friends. He figured they couldn't talk him out of it now. There's nothing they could do about it. He is a thousand miles from shore. So the ship picked up the letters, brought them back home, and, and mailed them. 
And that's how people learned where Robert was and what he was doing. Well, now everyone was excited. I mean, they were enthralled with this idea that he was out there in his little 13 and a half foot boat sailing on the ocean. The newspaper made a big story out of it. Everybody was talking about Robert Manry, wondering where he was. He continued to sail. One day while he was sailing along, he noticed something really dark coming up through the water. It seemed so big, almost right by him. It turned out it's a submarine. They'd seen him on their radar. They came up. <clears throat> they wanted to talk to him. Was he all right? Had a great visit with the crew. They went back down and <laughs> sailed away. No, his rudder broke three times, ran into storms. He was washed overboard, but had a rope tied on his waist to the boat, so he's able to pull himself back onto the boat. The days were long. At times, he started to hallucinate. Food became tasteless, but the time wore on. There were now other ships spotting him. He didn't realize it. People were looking for him, and they were posting his position. Planes were now looking for him, posting his position. He finally thought he was getting close to Falmouth, England, and and what he wanted to do, he expected he would finally get there, tie up at the dock, go to a hotel, take a warm, hot shower, get a good night's rest, get up the next morning, clean up, have a good breakfast, and then go to the Associated Press office and see if they might be interested in buying his story. He had been 78 days, 3,200 miles. What he didn't realize when he got close was word had spread that he was about to arrive. 50,000 people in Falmouth had come out to line the docks and the cliffs to see him come in. Hundreds of boats had gone out now to be uh, wanting to escort him in. The newspaper was getting a big scoop on this and it was selling papers and they had flown his wife and family over there to be standing on the dock to meet him. He was so stunned when he got off and there was Virginia the family, all the reporters, all the crowds. His life changed forever. In the end, he would go back and write a best-selling book about his adventure. And now he went on to the speaker circuit going all over talking about his adventure and what he learned. It changed their lives. He never did go back to work at the newspaper. Changed their lives in a wonderful way. Now he bought a 20-some-odd-foot sailboat, and he and the family started sailing up and down the East Coast and even down to the Caribbean. Changed things so much. Robert Manry, here we're still remembering him all these years later because he became the person to sail the smallest craft at that time across the Atlantic. 13-and-a-half-foot sailboat, 78 days, 3,200 miles. He did it. But you know, it wasn't just Robert Manry that did it. It was he in Virginia who did it. Nobody ever accomplishes their dreams on their own. We always need help from somebody who loves us. And it was Virginia who really demonstrated incredible love that she was willing to, to bear all the fears and the anxieties of this, she was willing 
to believe in him and this dream. She was willing to hope that he would survive and what the future could be. She was willing to endure the long nights of him being gone. No, she loved the special kind of love. A love that truly can bear all things and believe all things and hope all things and endure all things. It was her love that made the dream happen. Four years after he completed it, Virginia was going back to see her mother in 1969 who was dying there in Ohio. When she was driving back to their home there in Cleveland, she was in a one-car accident and she was killed. It was two years later in 1971, Robert Manry had gone to have dinner with some friends. And when dinner was over, they were retiring to the den when he began to have such serious chest pain and he fell over dead in a massive heart attack. He was 52. Everybody talked about how dangerous it was going to be sailing across the ocean and how he could die. Instead, he died of a heart attack, 52. But I think about how love never ends. Between he and Virginia, family, friends, so many. It's a special love, a sacrificial love. And I believe it's the kind of love that Paul was talking about in our scripture lesson this morning. I want to continue on this sermon series, Love Without Exception. And we've said that each week we are going to be looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 13th chapter, the love chapter, verse by verse. And what we've been learning from Paul is that he is writing to people who, who want to do the right thing and are so committed to the church so committed to faith. But now they've become jealous of each other and each one's trying to be better than the other and each one is now demanding their way in the church. It is pulling the church apart as they strive to do the things they believe are right and true. And Paul starts this chapter by saying, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have all prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, if I have faith so as I can move mountains, but I don't have love, then I am nothing. To understand that all these battles that sometimes you can fight, the question is, do you still have love? We forget that. Paul said, love is patient and kind. It isn't arrogant and rude and boastful or jealous. You know, it, it isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't insist on its own way. It does not rejoice in the wrong, but rejoices in the right. He tries to tell them, do you understand your attitudes and what you are doing? Even though you are striving to do well, you are tearing us apart if you don't remember what it means to love. And love is going to bear one another's burdens. Love is going to believe in each other. Love is going to hope in our future together. Love is going to endure all the struggles that come our way. Love never ends. 
It was a call to the church to love with a sacrificial way. You know, so often when you and I think about love, what we think about is, well, love makes me feel good. Love makes me happy. It's this feeling. But that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about a love that starts with a decision. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, I am going to choose to sacrifice for others by bearing all things and believing all things and hoping all things and enduring all things. I am going to sacrifice some of that happiness, just good feeling, because I love you. To choose a sacrificial love. Right now, we need that in our world. And we need to stop and always think about what is the greatest and common good we're all working for. And if we do not have love, then we are nothing. We have lost our way in the cause. To live with a sacrificial love. I want us to think about that this morning. I want to think about this love that Paul is talking about. And I want to try to understand it by asking ourselves two questions. One, what does this love look like? What does it look like? In the book of Matthew, in the 8th chapter, we read how Jesus has just come down from the Sermon on the Mount and He is beginning to journey and there's a crowd around Him when a leper begins to cry out. Now, lepers in that day, they lived a very tough existence because people knew that if someone had leprosy, they could give it to you. It was contagious. They didn't understand exactly how, and there was no way to heal it, but they knew that if you were a leper, you could give leprosy to them. And so they had forced social distancing 2,000 years ago. Lepers were put out of the community, away from family, friends. You lived out on the, the, the hillsides and in the caves. And if someone came near, you had to scream, leper, leper, unclean. This leper began to cry out to Jesus and said, you can heal me. Will you heal me, Lord? And Jesus had him come near and he falls down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus said, I will. And he reaches out and he touches him. Be healed. Now, what I want you to see is the fact that Jesus didn't have to touch him. Jesus healed lots of people without touching them. But what's the one thing this man missed so much was someone to touch, someone to love, someone to reach out and touch him. And Jesus touches him to heal him. The man who is unclean that everybody is afraid of. Right now, you want to know what love looks like? Just go look at all the people who are working in our hospitals in this COVID pandemic. Whether it's ambulance drivers, nurses, doctors, administrators, janitors, all these people who are working so hard on this COVID issue. Day in and day out, we all thought it might go on for a few weeks, but weeks turned into months and months are about to turn into a year. Day in and day out, they are going into these COVID wards, risking their lives because the disease is so infectious. 
And these people cannot be with their loved ones. They want it being the only ones to hold their hands as they fight for life or when they die. And they keep on doing it. Week after week and month after month. You want to know what love looks like? This past week I received word that a friend of mine, Gary Holderman, died. He was a fellow Methodist minister. Gary was a great guy. So talented, but so loving and so kind. I really admired Gary. He had just retired a couple of years ago. He was perfectly fine, great health. But he got COVID and he had to fight it for months, for months. And for months, family couldn't be with him. Who could be with him? It were these nurses and doctors, these people who were working there in the floors day after day. You started learning about how all these doctors and nurses, it is so hard on them. We all know someone who has died from COVID. We all know someone. We all know people who have been sick and hospitalized. We see it everywhere and around our country. 4,000 people a day are now dying. Hospitals are being overrun. And doctors and nurses and ambulance drivers, they're all still at it, working as hard as they can. I read a fascinating story about a lady, Emily Phillips. She was in Frisco, Texas. Her husband worked as an ER doctor. And when all this started breaking back in March a year ago, they started thinking about how he could be bringing something home to the family. Emily had asthma. They had an eight-year-old who had asthma. They had another child. And so they were trying to figure out, what are we going to do? How can we separate him from the family? And they're thinking, do we rent an apartment? Does he get a hotel? What's he got to do? And it was Emily who got on her Facebook page and put out the words, does anybody have an RV that we could borrow for a while? And it wound up being Holly um, Haggard. She wound up being someone who had an RV and Holly got back to Emily and said, I have one. We'd be happy to let you use it. We're not going out and going camping and traveling here in this pandemic. And so they brought it over and set it up. But Holly and, and Emily got to talking about this and thought how many people are facing this across the country. And they decided to try to set up a, a program and they called it RVs for MDs. Now, it wasn't just for doctors. It was for nurses or ambulance drivers or anybody who was having to put their life on the line and being exposed day after day. And they began trying to do this all for free, just helping to connect people. Within a month, there were 25,000 people who were a part of RVs for MDs, people giving their vehicles for all these people who are working in the hospitals and who needed to be separated from their family for safety purposes. I thought it was fascinating. Holly made a statement about what they were doing. They were being interviewed and she said, it doesn't matter how you vote or what your race, religion, or social status is. This is all about love and kindness. This is what America should be about. Complete strangers coming together, offering to help someone they've never met, and changing lives forever. It's what we're supposed to be about. 
you and I as people of faith. Let me say, one of the things I want to ask all of us, it doesn't matter whether you're here in Oklahoma City or across this country, wherever you are listening this morning, what if each of us this next week would think of somebody we know who is there involved in health care? People who have been working and working and having to fight this every single day. If we would all think of someone and then text them, email them, write them a note, do something kind for them and their family, the families are suffering too. If you reached out to say thank you and I'm thinking about you and I'm praying for you, I can't tell you what it would mean to them. And we are thousands. And if we all agreed to do that, there'd be thousands of people this week who would know that they're not alone and that we know they continue to love in a sacrificial way, bearing all things, believing all things, hoping all things, enduring all things. And out of love, we want to say thank you. It's what love looks like. Secondly, why do we love with a sacrificial love? Why would we consider doing such things? Why would they consider continue going to the hospitals? Why would we reach out and sacrifice for one another? The answer is because, because you and I believe Jesus when he said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. We believe Jesus when he said, when you do this unto the least of these, you do it unto me. We believe Jesus when he said, you have heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We do it because we are the follower of the Christ who has called us to a radical love, the love that Paul talks about to the church in Corinth in which he is saying, this isn't going to be just all about me insisting on my way and demanding my fair praise or whatever it might be. I'm asking you to live with a sacrificial love to bear all things and endure all things, to believe all things and to hope all things. It's the kind of love that never ends. That's what we are called to. And we all can see a great example of it as we think about tomorrow with Martin Luther King Day. It's time to celebrate his birthday. His real birthday is January the 15th, but we honor him every year on the third Monday of the year. Martin Luther King Jr. was such an amazing man, lived such an amazing life, helped us confront the issues of racism and discrimination in ways that weren't always comfortable. He did live a fascinating life. You know, his father was the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church there in Atlanta. He had grown up and been a sharecropper, worked on a plantation. He'd come to Atlanta, met a Dr. Williams who was the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church. And Dr. Williams took him in he helped him to get his education. And while he was there, he fell in love with Dr. Williams' daughter. They got married and 
he got his education, felt a call to ministry. And when Dr. Williams died, then it was Dr. King that wound up taking over for him at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Well, it was in 1934, there was going to be a Baptist convention going on in Berlin. And he was able to travel on this special trip. They went to Rome, Jerusalem, ultimately Berlin. And in 1934 is one year after Hitler had taken over. And already you could begin to see all the anti-Semitism, but, but all the persecution for anyone who wasn't white, the Aryan state. They saw what was going on and there they went. It was at the same time that he traveled out to learn about the Protestant Reformation. He learned all about Martin Luther. He went to all of his different places, the birth site and there where he was tried and there where he hid out in the castle. And he learned so much about Martin Luther and it was a spiritual moment in his life where he saw the power of the way that he led a protest to set people free a reformation beginning to happen. And so when Reverend King came back home, he decided to change his name. His real name was Michael King, but he changed it to Martin. And a little while later, he added Luther. And his name became Martin Luther King Sr. But because he changed it, he decided to change the name of his oldest son, who was then five years old. His name had been Michael King, but he changed his name to Martin Luther King Jr. It really was very biblical. Just like Jacob was changed to Israel and Saul was changed to Paul and, and Simon was changed to Peter. To know somebody's name was to know something about who they were, their essence. And Martin Luther King Sr. and Jr., they became all about leading a reformation, helping to set people free. You know, when you go back and you look at our United States in the 40s and 50s and 60s, when you really go back and study history, it's appalling. It's appalling how people of color were treated, people of different religions, the things that we were doing to one another. Black people couldn't go in and eat at a lunch counter. They couldn't ride a bus in a front. They, they, they couldn't get loans on their homes. Uh, they had to have certain bathrooms. I mean, it was horrible how they were treated. We needed to address this issue. And so a movement began to start and you found things picking up steam. Martin Luther King Jr. was so committed to nonviolence. There would be lots of violence but he would always preach against it nor ever participate in it. He didn't feel that's the way Jesus would do it. I love so many of the statements by Martin Luther King Jr. As I went back preparing for this, I started reading so many. I love it where he said, if there is one thing the world will always need more of, it's love. We may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. I've decided to stick with love. Hate is too great a burden to bear. Nonviolence is absolute commitment to the way of love. 
Love is not emotional, brash. It's not sentimentalism. It is the active outpouring of one's whole being into the being of another. It's not just that emotional, happy, good thing. It's about all of us making the decision that we're going to care and sacrifice for one another to treat everyone with a sense of dignity and respect. It's what he started working for. And it would cause him to be in sit-ins or to be on a march or to ride buses, you name it, over and over getting thrown into jail. But the momentum gained. Our country was having to face the issue. And so it was in 1963, they had a march on Washington, April of that year. They hoped to get 100,000 people into Washington Mall. And as, as the day grew close, they were afraid that wouldn't happen. And it didn't. A quarter of a million showed up. A quarter of a million. So much more than they anticipated. And they were going to speak from the steps of the Lincoln Capitol. And, and Martin Luther King Jr. would be one of those to speak. He had been working on a speech. He had others in this movement who had been helping him work on the speech. And he said, I think I need to talk about our dream. And they said, no, no, no. You've used that too many times. It's trite. They've heard that. Let's do something different. He said, okay. So they worked hard to write the speech. He finally grew tired that night and said, I'm going upstairs and I'm going to have a talk with my Lord. The next day, the crowds were there. All three television stations were there to give coverage. And the speeches went on. Mahalia Jackson was there to sing. She was inspiring. When it came his turn to speak, he stood up and he started reading his speech. And it was powerful. He had people engaged. He was reading what they had agreed to say. And as he was going on, though, it just didn't feel exactly quite right. And while the people were hollering at one time, it was Mahalia who said, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream. He set aside his notes. He went from speaker to Baptist preacher. And he began to say, I have a dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the former, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even in the state of Mississippi, sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children one day will live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. And when this happens and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last. 
it became one of the greatest speeches in history, remembered literally around the world. It was a moment of inspiration, something that all of us, when we stop and think about, we would all agree. We all want everyone to be able to join hands, black and white, red, brown. We want to be able to join hands, to live in peace, where everybody has an opportunity to get there. That requires sacrificial love. It certainly did for Martin. Oh, the things he went through. But finally, in 1964, we passed the Civil Rights Act. 65, it was the Voting Rights Act, and that literally would change the course of our nation and history. There was still so much prejudice and racism to overcome. There still is today. But it made such a difference, and it pushed us down the road. We begin to look at it, and all of us can look at it and say, should someone have to eat in a different restaurant or use a different restroom or not be able to stay in a hotel because of the color of their skin? Today, it seems so absurd. And yet it was so prevalent. We've made that progress, but it was so hard. Things were happening in the 60s, and we didn't really, a lot of people didn't want to address it. So much so, there were lots of threats of, on his life. It was in 1968 that he was going to Memphis to support a, a strike by sanitation workers, simply asking for decent pay to be able to live, to be treated with respect. But before he went, he went to Atlanta to go see his mom and his dad. It was on a Sunday. That evening, they were all at home. It had been a lovely day. They went out onto the back porch and Martin said to his mom, there's some things I need to say to you. The FBI is now telling me that there are people who are looking to kill me. It's not just talk and rumors and threat. They said they're trying to kill me. There's money involved, assassins. They don't know when or where. She didn't want to hear it. She didn't want to talk about it. He walked to the end of the patio and he said, I don't want to have to do this, but we've come so far. I feel like I have to do this. It's what I'm called to do. And I can't be afraid. They all hugged. He would leave that night. The next day, he would head to Memphis. It would be on Thursday. He was coming out of his hotel room to go help march with the, the protesters the next day. But when he came out of his hotel room there at the Lorraine Hotel, an assassin's bullet killed him. A greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends. He was 39 years old. 
left behind a wife and four children. All because he was asking us to love each other. To be willing to bear each other's burdens. To believe in each other. To have a hope for a future with each other. To endure with each other. Asking us to love each other with a sacrificial love. And so he was killed. You know, I'm concerned right now about our country. I'm really concerned what this next week is going to be like. And what I believe is that you and I have the opportunity to be a part of the answer and not a part of the problem. If you and I will be so careful by the things we say, by the things we post, by the things we do, if we will stop and ask ourselves, are we insisting on our own way? Are we irritable and resentful? Are we doing everything out of a motivation of love? You and I can be the people who are part of the answer. If we believe all things, if we bear all things, if we hope all things, if we endure all things, if you and I are willing to love with a sacrificial love, then we can be a part of the answer. I'm asking you to love without exception. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.